Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Hello everybody and welcome to GradCast podcast. I'm Alex Mozinski, your host, and I'm joined today by co-host... Tristan Johnson, howdy. Hey everybody. Um, so today we're joined by our guest Robin Schwartz-Pimmer. Um, yeah. yeah. She's a first okay. year PhD <laughs> okay. in history here at Western. Okay. Uh, we got a lot of awesome history people coming down the pipe, and Robin's the first. Hello, welcome to the show. Hi, Tristan. Thanks for having me today. So, you came on because you had a purpose. You had a very interesting project that you have more or less finished up rather recently, and you were dying to talk about it. So let's hear a little bit about what you took. Yeah, so, um, well, to give you a bit of a background, last semester I took uh, Jonathan Vance's social memory course, and in that class we look sort of, it's a little bit different history because it's not studying how, what happened in the past, it's studying how people think about the past. And so my project for that class was on the new 2013 Canadian passport issue, um, which I spent all last semester working on this and then all of a sudden just over the last month it's become this big sort of viral thing on the internet because someone put a black light on the passport and all of the images have been sort of blown up so to speak because they're very different that way so um, when I heard saw that I thought that it'd be a great subject for a show because I've been spending all this time working on this passport. It's a good call. So to zoom out first, what's like your main focus as like a historian right now, or if, if you if you can even say anything? Uh, well, I would not actually consider myself a historian. I'd consider myself a uh, Canadian studies scholar um, or more Canadian cultural studies. So I look at uh, my big project is Expo 67, and I'm looking at Expo 67 from the perspective of Canadian identity and Canadian identity in the 1960s. So, um, and particularly from the perspective of decolonization colonization, so looking at Canada breaking away from Britain and constructing its new identity, um, Quebec and Canada and how that plays out at Expo, the First Nations Pavilion at Expo and how that plays out, and then uh, Canada's relationship with the world with people coming to Expo. So that's sort of my long-term project, but I am only in term two of the PhD. Yeah. So at the risk of sounding incredibly uh, out of the loop, and possibly a little bit super uneducated. Um, what is Expo 67? Expo 67 was a World's Fair that took place in Montreal um, during 1967, which was Canada's 100th birthday. Um, so it took place for six months from April to October, and it was this really, really successful World Fair. Um, it's something that I would say is one of the best things Canada's really ever done as far as putting on a world event. Um, I think something that we could compare it to that's more recent is the Vancouver 2010 Olympics. So imagine the Olympics, but six months in Montreal where tons of people from all over Canada, all over the world come and share their cultures and share um, their food, all sorts of different things, and uh, yeah, all on an island in the center of Montreal. So this took place over six months? Yes. Oh, that's amazing, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect timing, we're just uh, two days out from, or one day out from the 50th anniversary of the Canadian flag, mm -hmm. and yeah. also we have our, the whole going viral of our new rave 
passport. So let's talk about the Rave passport, shall we? Yeah. Um, so the new passport came out in 2013. Um, it was the first sort of updated passport after the new travel um, initiative came in in 2009 that forced Canadians to have a passport to go to the United States. Um, and basically the difference with this passport compared to old ones and why I wanted to focus on it in my research is this is the first passport that has included different images in the visa pages. So the old visa pages had just watermarks of the maple leaves, so all of them are the same. Whereas this new one, um, there are, I believe it's 31 different images of various symbols of what Canada is. So there's the statue of Terry Fox, um, there's Aboriginal symbols, there's all sorts of different things, and that was basically what I focused on for this project. All right, so let's begin with the first question about that would be who chose what was a Canadian thing, passport worthy? Yeah, well, and that's something that I really tried to get at the heart of with this research. Um, I was able to talk a little bit with Passport Canada through my sort of Canadian history connections, um, and they couldn't give me a lot of information about it just because it's still classified because it's really, uh, even though we're, I'm a in the history program, it's really not history yet. It's one of those, I'm sure you know, liminal sort of spaces. Yep. Um, but it was done in consultation with the uh, Minister for Immigration. Um, and so it basically would have been through Passport Canada, a committee selecting these images and what they thought were the best. But outside of that, I don't, I wasn't able to get any more information out for the actual like people that were making the decisions. Okay. Is that a bad thing that it was a committee or? I don't think so. It's one of those things. So they did this process in a much shorter time than any other country would do. That was one thing that uh, in my talks with Passport Canada, they communicated to me that it was done in sort of a year, all these decisions, whereas um, the two other passports that would be considered sort of comparative as far as they've also added these types of images are Britain and America and they did theirs over a two-year period so I think um, as far as expediting and getting this done because um, part of this passport update was also bringing in the e-passport so having like that chip in your passport when you travel um, having just a small committee do it that's basically seems to be why they made that decision. Why did it need to be done so quickly? Was it like an urgent... Yeah, so earlier in the 2000s, um, that's when we agreed to have, I can't remember what year it was, but that's when we agreed to have this e-passport, which is what every year, like all of our sort of allies, Europe, um, Australia, America, have. They have this e-passport that they're, and basically it's for security reasons. Your passport has a chip, so that way it's harder to replicate. And because of 9-11 um, and all the increase security with that we kept pushing back this e-passport and when we were going to implement it so that's why when they finally like got the go-ahead they decided to really push it as quickly as possible because it was almost 10 years late after everyone else all right so what were you digging into when you decided to tackle the passports uh well there's a couple of images that i think are really they were selected with a purpose. Um, a lot of the times we look at these things and we think, oh, well, here's some images of Canada, here's Parliament, here's uh, Quebec City, here's these, and it just seems like they're normal things that we would think and that you don't necessarily, the average Canadian, I'm sure, doesn't 
think about why those pictures were selected. Um, but the images of, for instance, there's a whole spread of six different um, military images relating to the Korean War, the First World War, the Second World War, and there's also an image of the prairies that includes a uh, oil rig. So that was part of what I sort of attracted me to dig into because I'm I wanted to essentially argue that these were not just selected because they were normalized Canadian identity images. They're images that perpetuate a sort of Harper government construction of what it means to be Canadian. Yeah, like a little bit on Harperism and Harper's kind of identifying Canadianism in different... A couple things that stand out is, one, the more, most historians eye-rolling over um, the 1812 mm -hmm. bicentennial campaign that happened in 2012. The other big one would be um, the renaming of the military back to the Royal Canadian Armed mm -hmm. Forces. So what does, um, what does the passport really have to say about um, how Harper is reinterpreting, or the Harper government, I should say, not him personally maybe, but uh, how they re are trying to reinterpret Canadian history? Well, out of the number of pages that there are in the passport, so 31, there's certain images that there will be one image of, there's one image for instance of a woman, there's not, there's the Nellie McClung statue in it, there's one image of Terry Fox, there's one, there's the Fathers of Confederation, yet there are six images uh, related to Canada's military achievements, so we've got Vimy Ridge, which is fairly I think, so obvious like we would expect that to be in there it is on our $20 bill um, but they've chosen to also put in Billy Bishop representing the, the wars um, and on that spread they have the war memorial um, They and so having that many military images I think just supports that idea that Harper's government has chosen to favor a sort of warrior nation narrative for what it means to be Canadian and does that also apply to the recent redesign of the paper money as well? Um, I would say less so. Um, the And actually, I know a little bit about this just because my current supervisor is actually working on some new uh, money for the 150th coming up. Um, Vimy is obviously on the 20, but I don't think other than removing, there's some complaints about the removal of women from the money. I don't think there's a lot of... Uh, perpetual kind of military images in that in the same way that there is in the passport. So, <laughs> another interesting thing, another Harperism of uh, attempting to make history, maybe whether it wasn't or trying to reinvent, is um, the way the Conservative Party tried to talk about the recent passing of Flaherty, and how they tried to build him as like this monumental Canadian hero that no one had ever heard of until he died. <laughs> yeah, well, hmm, I don't know what I would say about that. I feel like he's, it's, with any sort of government, like I could see a liberal or an NDP government doing sort of the same thing if it was someone that mm. was associated with their government. I'm sure, like, um, if something happened with, to John Baird now, we would all think that John Baird was the greatest minister, like foreign affairs minister we'd ever had, because that's what they would tell us. Um, but I think that the same could be said if the Trudeau government came in or what have you. Like, if it's someone associated with your government, I think you're going to favor them over other people. All right, excellent. Um, so I guess I wanted to ask a question about what you mentioned earlier, which is social memory. Mm -hmm. um, 
I want to go a little bit deeper into that. And how, how does that change over time? So, so something that happened a week ago, a lot of people that have read about things in the media might remember it very differently than people mm -hmm. 10 years from that event. So what, how does that shift and change over time? And how might a government uh, impact the shifting and formation of that memory for future generations? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think the biggest thing that I took away from my class this last semester was that it tends to, the things that we remember tend to, we gravitate towards things that are um, like important for the time. So for instance, um, if we're remembering the War of 1812 or like to give another Harper government example, they seem to really like John Diefenbaker. He was a conservative prime minister in the 60s who they can identify with because he's conservative and he's someone that they would want to sort of uphold with that. Um, and I think that, so we tend to, as far as what narratives and what memories get favored, it seems to be what will service the community at the time rather than what was maybe more important in the past. So for Canada, we like to think that Vimy Ridge was this great moment in which the nation was forged on the battlefield. Um, and that's been a narrative that has come up much after the war even happened, but has been sustained because we don't really have any other sort of foundational myths that say we didn't have a revolution like America. We didn't break away, so we, we like to latch on to these things and say that this is what makes Canada a country, this is when Canada came to be. Yeah, and you're really speaking to your Canadian studies in here, because like, um, maybe you could speak a little to how a lot of the Canadian history through culture is just the struggle to even nail some sort of identity and find something that we can say is a Canadian thing. Yeah, um, and I think that's one thing that I really tried to navigate with this project as far as, like, when I started approaching it, it's easy to just criticize and say, oh, well, they're favoring this narrative or they're favoring this idea or this event. Um, but Canada, especially since the 60s, and that's why, uh, for my broader research, that's where I focus, has tried to nail down things that we consider Canadian identity or look at what it means to be Canadian because with us being a nation of immigrants um, we don't and with us not having had a civil war not having had a revolution because we always like to compare ourselves to America um, there is no it, the things that we say are Canadian are things that we say are Canadian. And what I mean by that is we like to say that, oh, this was a great moment for Canada, but whether or not it actually was is entirely up to debate, which I think is, is interesting and sort of unique as far as Canada is concerned. Yeah. Uh, the other question I guess I'd ask is uh, what kind of conclusions did you come to when thinking about the real erasure of women like, couldn't the conservatives, like, I don't know, slap Kim Campbell on or something? To, uh... Yeah, I, it's hard because it, I do agree with you, like, especially, um, I'm a really big fan of the Heritage Minutes, and if people are interested in sort of, like, normalized Canadian 
identity narratives. All of the Heritage Minutes are online now, and you can just sit and watch all of them on Historica Canada. You're done for nine, uh, goodness. It's actually, well, there's the most recent ones too, right? Uh, Which is uh, actually the most recent one was a World War One one that, uh, and hockey. World War One and hockey, the two most Canadian things that could possibly happen. Um, yeah, no, it's true. Um, but, so I would say that there are women in Canadian history that could be put on things, but the hard thing, and one thing that I haven't said yet that I know that the committee that was making these decisions struggled with is if they decide to put Tristan on the passport, they have to talk to the person who drew Tristan's picture and get their permission to put him on there, and they have to talk to you, and then maybe someone else is going to come out of the woodwork and say, oh, well, I like made Tristan who he is. I deserve a cut of some of this money. So there's a lot of, um, I think, difficulties as far as putting actual people on there that may be contested in that sort of way. Yeah, because I can imagine we just recently talked about Louis Riel last episode, <laughs> and... I don't think he's going to end up on the money anytime soon, but uh, that's an example of something that the Harper government might not want to try to remember. But um, sorry. So, would would that be something that would mean that people might add something or remove something out of convenience to the passport? Because I know that in science, that happens more than one would like to think. Mm -hmm. You read a paper, and why would they have used this antibody? Why would they have used this method? Well, that's because that's what they had. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what they move forward with because it might have cost millions of dollars to do it a different way. Yeah, I definitely think that that's the case um, with not all the images, but some of them. So, um, for instance, like the images can really be broken down into three categories. There's sort of historical ones like the last spike, which that like they would have to get permission from the person who drew that image but it, there's less sort of well are we going to put this person that's been dead for 100 years on here I don't think that's going to be an issue um, and then landscape obviously that's not a problem to get permission from someone so those ones are pretty evident but um, with for instance the aboriginal so the first page of the passport is says sim, aboriginal symbols on it or something to that effect and there's an infinity symbol a feather and an anukshuk no actual like aboriginal people um, and I think and that page has been very heavily criticized by pe when it came out that it doesn't actually have any aboriginals on it um, but I think that it's that decision would have been made because it's more difficult to get permission for to depict someone or as opposed to depicting a thing that they don't need to ask. Mm -hmm. How is it on Quebecois representation? The city of Quebec is there. Okay, That's, that works. And actually the explorer, um, or no, he might be Spanish. Samuel de Champlain? No, it's not, I, he's there as well, actually, yeah, as the founder of Quebec. <laughs> All right. So, like, another one of the things that people have criticized in, like, Canadian social memory before this period mm -hmm. is that it was, if you if you look at Canadian history up until about the 2000s, Canada is the history of Quebec and Ontario mm -hmm. and a little bit of B.C. Uh, so this prairie with the oil rig has some significance. 
Yeah, I think so. Um, it's so it's got an oil, a couple of oil rigs, and then there's also a train going through it, and of course some wheat. Um, and then the thing that I learned when this all blew up on the internet is if you put it under blacklight, you get more wheat. More. <laughs> um, so I think that including that, and there's really. Um, representations landscape-wise of lots of different parts of Canada. There's Newfoundland, um, like I mentioned, Quebec City, so they sort of hit all of the main province identity type areas, though interestingly BC is really on the outs, which is sad because I'm from British Columbia, so. They didn't even put like, on a, what's it called, like a totem pole or something for you? No, uh, there's, uh, and actually one of the recommendations, because at the end of the paper I recommended uh, things that I thought should have been on there instead, um, and I think the Rockies would have been a good, yeah. less contentious issue. I was just about to say, did they have the Rockies? Because I was in BC this fall for the first time, and mm -hmm. I have to say it's the most beautiful place I've ever been. Mm -hmm. And I went to see an exhibit called Flyover Canada. Oh, Okay, yeah, Vancouver, yeah, I've been there. And I cried. <laughs> I felt so, like, just amazed to be in Canada because mm -hmm. you fly over all these beautiful landscapes, and it really um, shocked me that, mm -hmm. you know, I've been to so many of them already, and I'd love to see all of them. But what, uh, I guess what would you say it means, then, um, from all this to be Canadian? And that's probably a really philosophical question. And then what would you say it means to be American? And why... Would there be a difference um, more than just a border? That is a hard question. There's uh, a lot of money for you if you can answer that. Yeah, particularly <laughs> because I did actually, the one thing Tristan and I have in common is we both are graduates of the Center for American Studies, and I did my degree in Canadian-American relations, so I spent a year contemplating this very question. <laughs> um, and I would say that being Canadian at least as far as the passport is concerned, is just ascribing to certain Im images and ideas that we consider as Canadian. I don't think that as far as culture or as far as economics or politics, um, we're really that different from the United States. I think that we're all sort of North American, but there are s specific things like Vimy Ridge, um, like the centennial itself, just certain ideas and history that our country has experienced that makes us a little bit different. I think it's perfect to end on that. Thank you so much, Robin. That was an amazing talk. Thank you. That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at gradcastradio, and look up gradcastradio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com and it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week.